0: What is a city? Why, and more importantly how, do we build cities, plan cities, and study cities? And how can we do that equitably? My name is Wesley Reibling.
1: And my name is Nathaniel Hanuel James. Our lives converged during the height of the lockdown through community arts projects, and we instantly hit it off as friends and co-conspirators. We wanted to create art. And more importantly, conversations about equitable cities and participatory art practices. So we started meeting with city planners, artists, leaders, movers, shakers, and everyone in between to ask folks about their own experiences in cities, especially Toronto, and ways to create better futures. So welcome to
0: Flux in the City. On this episode of Flux in the City, we talk through subcultures in cities, DIY cultural spaces, And the queer night economy in a conversation with travis van wick travis is a master's planning student at the university of toronto interested in the intersections between planning community economies and the practice of do-it-yourself scenes and spaces his research looks at diy communities in toronto berlin and amsterdam to consider potential avenues for establishing equitable artistic cultural and nighttime policies without instrumentalizing displacing, or marginalizing alternative cultures, scenes, and spaces. In his work, Travis looks at DIY spaces as transformative sites with the capacity to produce non-capitalist subjectivities where one can imagine post-capitalist futures and cultivate a renewed social-focused understanding of creativity. Travis is also a researcher at Long Winter, and stemming from this interview, Travis has became a close friend, ally, co-conspirator. Lastly, Travis is a wonderful, hilarious, clever human really doing great research in the city, and we're so happy to have him here with us today. We speak to him about urban planning, queer space, and the phallic symbolism of the and Tower, subcultures, housing, and everything in between. Without further ado, here he is.
2: I'm Travis, I use he, him pronouns. I'm zooming in from my apartment in what the city of Toronto calls Witchwood that neighborhood, but I generally think of it as Hillcrest, just because of this lovely mural around the corner from my house from the Hillcrest BIA. It's on the traditional territory of of many nations, including the the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Chippewa, Haudenosaunee, and Wendat peoples. I know Toronto is sometimes referred to as Tukorano, which I recently learned might have actually referred to somewhere closer to Lake Simcoe, which I find really interesting. I grew up in that area around Orillia. I don't know, I think it's interesting how that name kind of relates to this place and this area that I know so well and I really connect to the land around there. I guess how it might in some roundabout way bring us back to Toronto. So no matter how far I try to leave Aurelia, I feel like I always have a bit of a connection there which is nice. Yeah I'm a planning student currently but I have a background in geography which is where my interest in planning came from. I kind of describe myself as like a baby planner an urbanist in whatever sense that means, and always queer, which I think is super significant in the way I navigate institutions and professional spaces as well.
0: That's
1: awesome. We'd love to ask you about your master's in planning that you're currently completing at the University of Toronto. Um, And just, can you describe some of the broad strokes of your research for us? Because i I will say that before this we did read your LinkedIn bio <laughs> just to see what all of the topics were. And it was like a dizzying array of fantastic subjects of research. Yeah. So what is your like passion or or your research topic that you're currently exploring?
2: All sure, right, yeah. Well, first of all, I want to apologize that you had to read my LinkedIn bio because I don't even remember what I put in there. So <laughs> it might not have been an accurate indication of what I look at, but it's something, I'm sure. So, yeah, I'm doing a, a Master of Science in Planning at U of T, and I specialize in economic development planning as well as social planning and policy, which is to say, like, I'm primarily interested in the social and solidarity economy, exploring alternative practices and spaces where 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 curiosity, creativity, experimentation, reciprocity, and community can thrive. I'm also interested in the cultural economy and cultural planning more broadly. So that's kind of where where my base is, so to speak. Um, It's an area that I continue to return to regardless of what particular project I'm looking at, but right now I'm looking at raves. Um, So Toronto's rave scene uh, more specifically and its DIY art scene more broadly. I'm looking at DIY placemaking practices in the rave scene to, I guess, explore a framework of best practices for professionals, planners, and municipalities to support and nurture DIY, uh, and underground scenes in non-instrumental ways. Yeah. I'm interested in exploring the tensions between bureaucratic structures and the DIY ethos of many subcultural scenes. And I'm also kind of exploring the ways in which creativity discourses often commodify cultural and subcultural production in an effort to increase a city's competitiveness and how these processes eventually lead to marginalizing artistic communities, but also how these communities work to resist them.
0: That's awesome. Thank you. Amazing. It's a beautiful description. Yeah. I guess going back to your uh, last description of your program and kind of the broad strokes of your research, what uh, path led you to your research and why did you want to study these topics? Like what kind of inspired you to start exploring these themes? I apologize in advance because this might be a long answer, but... That's um, what we're
2: here for. Yeah. I began with research on spaces uh, for queer nightlife in my undergrad. I kind of came across this area of geography. Um, Like I said, that's where my background is, called queer geography. And I was really interested in exploring that a bit more, and there weren't a lot of courses that covered this. So I worked with an instructor and kind of developed my own summer reading course Yeah, on Spaces for Queer Nightlife. Uh, And I wanted to look at the ways social exclusion operates in these spaces. And so the project was super informal. Again, it was mostly reading. And yeah, I kind of started my interest in queer theory or bringing that interest in conversation with more empirical investigation. This is a bit of a cliche, but I went to Berlin and I became (laughs) obsessed with the city's nightlife and, and its club scene. I was really mesmerized by the use of space in ways that I hadn't seen space used before, especially in Toronto. One of Berlin's most famous clubs, Trezor, for example, used to be located in the vault of the former department store that was destroyed during World War II. And after the wall came down, vacant and disused buildings with very unclear ownership structures just became available for the taking seemingly overnight. And if I'm correct in retelling this, the owners of what became Trezor eventually kind of stumbled across this vault in the rubble of what was left of the department store and just started renting it from the German government for a very, very low price. And they eventually kept it. And so I was really interested in the architectural qualities of these spaces, um, which were integral to the experience of techno music. And I was also just so interested in the city's club culture and also its material dimensions. So looking directly at the scene, it kind of became obvious that the biggest concern among the community was the displacement from development-related pressures. It's kind of the age-old story of wealthy residents moving into luxury developments and complaining about noise. But Berlin is an interesting spot, I guess, in the ways that the city is actually doing something due to uh, its club commission, which is like a an organization that serves as a policy advocate for club culture in the city since around the early 2000s. Most recently, it's been central to the city declaring clubs there as cultural institutions, which allows for particular protections and considerations that developers have to keep in mind when building So yeah, I wanted to research this and kind of understand the theoretical and the political implications behind these contexts. And I think that really just solidified my interest in night culture and the nighttime economy. So coming into planning school, I knew I wanted to focus on these things, but I wasn't really sure where to look. And I was like, wait, okay, Toronto's rave scene is totally where I want to be at right now and I thought of all the incredible spaces. Toronto has seen in its time like Comfort Zone which has recently reopened, Club 120, 500 Kiel. Many of these so-called underground spaces have been displaced and of course this is heightened under COVID and I was just curious to see what the city and what communities were doing about this and what could be learned from other places.
0: That's so interesting and I guess just before we go on for the folks tuning in, could you, in your best words, uh, describe what like a cultural institution is, how you would define it?
2: Yeah, well, so in the Berlin context, so the club commission there has really been advocating for clubs in the city to have the same status that so-called high culture uh, places would have. So museums, national galleries, opera houses, they're Reasoning was that if these places were displaced, it would be an outrage. But when clubs are displaced, not as many people care, despite club culture being so significant for that city. So a cultural institution in that regard, I think, is just something that holds particular policy protections and also, I suppose, is valued by government.
0: That's so interesting. Okay, one last question around this is, uh, if you had to note one thing Berlin's doing right or wrong, or one thing Toronto's doing right or wrong, you can look at Berlin and the way that it holds space for these DIY cultural spaces and what Toronto is doing, maybe the opposite or... Is there any tips or tricks or anything you could say uh, policy-wise is happening in Berlin that maybe Toronto can like take note of in the way that we like look at our spaces here in the city?
2: Hmm, yeah. I don't know. I feel like the context between Toronto and Berlin are, are quite different. I think Berlin does have more room for experimentation with kind of vacant and disused spaces as well as public spaces as well, whereas Toronto, I mean... The city can be very bureaucratic by its nature and there's a lot of checkpoints to pass which might make experimenting with space a bit more inaccessible for a broad range of folks. Um, So I think, I mean, I would love to see if Toronto just became a bit more open to, uh, I guess, non-conventional spaces.
0: Great. Awesome. On a personal note, we were wondering like what queer community means to you and like what queer placemaking means could mean to you and kind of in the work and study that you're researching right now.
2: Yeah. um, Well, like I said earlier, like I grew up in central Ontario, where I didn't really know what it meant to belong to a community. Before I moved to Toronto, I mean, like any 17-year-old, I was very sure of myself. And I felt like I knew almost everything. But coming into Toronto's queer community, I felt really humbled me, but at the same time allowed me to find parts of myself that needed to heal before I ever even knew that these parts existed. So that's what, that's what queer community means to me, I suppose. In terms of placemaking and queer placemaking, I mean, like, I mean, at the most basic level, I think placemaking is a process through which a community, an individual, a collective creates and inscribes meaning to space i see it as contested uh, negotiated never complete and always adapting i see it as something that's sometimes temporal and ephemeral that is meaning of and relationship to place it might be just for one night might only exist during a particular moment or belonging to a particular time i think it's also emotional and relational it's something that's felt and experienced and something that isn't always ready to be quantified So more recently, like a queer sense of place and queer placemaking has meant to me embracing this ephemerality and this temporality. I think as we begin to experience a loss of a, a central place, so to speak, or as we begin to realize that some of these spaces aren't as inclusive or as responsive as we greatly need them to be. I'm beginning to see value in temporality and place that exists for just a moment in time. I don't think that this necessarily discounts the significance of holding permanent space, but I also think it allows for an imagining of queer place in spaces that aren't typically thought of or coded as queer.
1: Hmm. That's so fascinating. And I was wondering, actually, that makes me want to bring it back to something that you said earlier about sort of DIY spaces popping up and then... Uh, sort of the more bureaucratic or institutional nature of the city wanting to formalize or capitalize on those spaces or that culture for the the prestige and, and publicity and promotion of the city itself, and then marginalized groups who might be even further marginalized by that process resisting in some ways, I think how you phrased it. Are you able to, to elaborate on that a bit or give an example of that? Because I think that's a really fascinating cycle That you brought up yeah in terms of resistance yeah in terms of resistance and maybe the way what you said about the city um sort of trying to to create cultural capital as well Mm. and the the Mm -hmm. tensions between those yeah
2: yeah, well, I think that the city for a long time has only valued particular forms of culture. And more recently, from my understanding, they're beginning to shift gears a bit and seeing value in things that are produced on the fringe without necessarily needing to begin to extract capital from it. So, in terms of the city kind of having its long standing tradition of just Valuing particular types of culture. I mean, more recently, they released a report on, on venues in the city that have begun to be displaced and also taking into consideration the context of COVID, but they really only focused on very mainstream venues like Massey Hall and Rebel and Danforth Music Hall. These are, these are very important spaces as well. But it's clear that spaces like the Beaver, for example, or Club 120 weren't necessarily on the city's radar so to speak so in terms of resistance i think as we begin to lose some of these really important spaces that have allowed for experimentation um, and access for particular communities in ways that more mainstream venues haven't really afforded i'm beginning to see at least kind of a more spontaneous use of space from some of these communities so like throwing a rave in a park where that's not necessarily legal but they're doing it anyway which i think is totally punk rock um, and very cool so I think that's where we're going to be seeing a bit more I guess like subcultural production in that way and yeah in terms of the city not capitalizing upon it I mean that's kind of where my what my research is looking at I, I'm still trying to answer that question like what are the frameworks or what does the framework look like to support these communities without necessarily instrumentalizing them or turning them into something to extract profit from
1: that's very cool thank you for elaborating on that. And that actually makes me curious, is there a cultural space, maybe I'll like jump ahead in the questions and we can circle back. Is there a a cultural space that either one brings you a lot of joy in the city, like that you feel is sort of the heart of the city for you? Or is there something that you find yourself being like really nostalgic for, in our last interview, someone talked about the beaver as well. Um, it doesn't have to be the beaver, but any space that sort of you wish still existed. I feel like I I've only been here for two years. And every time that I meet a new person, they're like, You should have been here 10 years ago, because everything was <laughs> way cooler. Um, apparently, and I miss it all. But I but this makes me really excited to hear about all these new like DIY, really punk rock spaces, as you say, that are popping up. Um, and is there anything, yeah. Is there anything that you really love and is there anything that you really miss?
2: I mean, I, I'm going to agree with the beaver. I miss the beaver very much. I have lived in the last Sun for some time now and the parties there were so fun. And you just couldn't access those types of parties and other spaces. Um, and also I could take the Dufferin bus there and it was faster. <laughs> <And> it was <laughs> so much easier to get to. Um, I also miss Club 120 a lot. And they had these, some people are going to hear this and think I'm I'm nuts, but they had these um, daycare sessions on nights that you didn't quite want to end. And I think they would start at like 9 a.m. and they would go until noon and then you would go home. Yeah, so I miss that. In terms of nostalgia as well, I I think the old streetcars and they were not accessible at all and very, very uncomfortably hot in the summer, but I did find them very charming. And I love sitting with the window open on like a rainy summer day and just listening to the brakes scream as they stop. I love the new streetcars, but I miss the old ones very much.
0: That's so beautiful. And like, yeah, I don't think my first few years living downtown in Toronto, I lived along uh, Queen West and then I lived in uh, like college in Spadina for quite a few years and as much as like i live in a quiet nook in uh, north of warnow i still kind of have this nostalgia for that area and, and you know like the sound of a screeching streetcar isn't a nice sound but there is something really comfortable about it and something that's like almost sounds like music like i i totally understand what you mean and like i get very nostalgic about that now that you bring that up too and then just going back to club 120 and like especially the beaver I think I just wanted to, to like take note of the like past folks who really made those space possible, like Mandy Goodhandy and like Will Monroe, who, you know, threw their own queer punk rock parties um back in the day where a lot of huge music that we still listen to today, you know, like Peaches and uh uh Crystal Castles and all those kind of bands that came out of that, uh, the Vaseline parties. And I hope that out of The world we're living in now, um, we can still create kind of the spaces or even create better spaces, better parties, better existence for all, similar to kind of like what Mandy Goodhandy and Will Monroe kind of did either accidentally or... (laughs) on purpose, but kind of creating those spaces for queers and allies alike and everyone in between and the the folks on the outskirts. So yeah, I'm really happy you brought up those two venues. I think they've meant a lot to a lot of people in the queer community over the last, I was going to say millennia, but that's way too long. <laughs> but yeah, thank you for that. Outside of uh, this podcast, Nathaniel and I are embarking on an art project kind of around Equity in the city and around, like community consultation. But in that, we are exploring the theme of the sea and tower disappearing or crumbling to bits, and what would replace it. Kind of going back to a Nathaniel's question around a spot that makes you nostalgic. Do you have something that you hold dear—a building, a street corner, a <laughs> an expressway? I don't know that you hold dear, and then if. You could speak maybe to your feelings around the CN Tower. And if you could replace it with something, what would that be? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So hmm, in
2: terms like of like a an area of the city that I really hold dear to myself, like I can't I can't pin it to one particular neighborhood or place. Um, but I do think it kind of speaks to the way that cities are more than their built environments, maybe more. I kind of see them as more uh, of a result of the ways spaces, places and people interact with and shape each other um, and sometimes contradictory and contested and in surprising ways, too. But for me personally, I'm actually obsessed with Toronto's laneways. I think they're so charming. <laughs> and I think they could be really vibrant spaces as well, if you can imagine what they might be used for beyond laneway homes and garages. And I think laneway houses are certainly a start, but I think there's more to be seen there, I think. And the CN Tower as well. Okay, so I Googled photos of the CN Tower in preparation for this interview. Like I've never seen it before, but. Um, <laughs> And the most ridiculous thing came up. It was a Whisper app photo. Do you remember that app, Whisper?
0: Yeah. Didn't you, like, send secret, like, maybe I'm thinking of something else. But, okay, hear me out. I'm going to try to explain it. Was mm-hmm. it where, like, if I had, like, a crush on somebody, like, I would put that up as, like, a secret note that nobody knew? Or is this, like, something completely different? I, th- I think that's it. And you would, like, have a photo as the background.
2: and You could put whatever, yes. and it's, like, completely anonymous. Anyway, so. Like, Tumblr days. This was, like, back like- from,
0: like, when Tumblr was huge.
2: One hundred percent, very twenty ten. Okay, so I googled the CN Tower, and this one uh, screenshot from Whisper mm-hmm. showed up, and it's just said that the CN Tower was designed to resemble a penis, and I was like, okay, that checks out. <laughs> and I mean, probably yeah, in some roundabout way, it was it was owned by the Canada National Railway, which is now CN Rail, when. It was a crown corporation. And from my understanding, this, this, um, the railway formed after several railway companies started to go under. So I guess I look at the tower and I think of how infrastructure, particularly rail infrastructure and how railway has facilitated colonial expansion and capitalist accumulation. I'm curious about CN's and by extension, the nation's wealth and how that was put on display as an international symbol of power, which may or may not have been designed to resemble a penis. But that aside, I actually feel indifferent about the tower, which might be controversial because in my experience, you either love it or you hate it, whereas I could take it or leave it. I don't feel any way about it at all. But if I could replace it with anything, maybe some sort of space held in the commons for cooperatives and artists. I think about some of the cool spaces in or that have come out of Paris. Uh, like... Les Grands Voisins, if I'm pronouncing that right, which was a collective project uh, on the site of a former hospital in Paris that provided space for artist residences, studios, refugee accommodation and emergency shelter, markets, performance space. Um, It was always meant to be temporary, but they did some really cool stuff um, with what they had.
0: Does it still exist today?
2: It does not. It closed in, I want to say late 2020. I think it started in 2015. It was only supposed to be one or two years, but the city of Paris extended it a bit. And yeah, they were always super responsive to what the community needed at the time. So as COVID began to take hold in Paris, they shifted gears and started providing meals to people nearby
0: and doing grocery deliveries for people. Wow. uh, Sounds like the exact kind of space we need in cities like Toronto. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. And yeah, it's so funny that you uh, called the CN Tower like the penis in the sky, because that's something that us exploring our own themes around queerness in the city, uh, it it always kind of, to me, felt like this, excuse uh, the language here, but like this dick race or uh, this, this dick competition between other cities and like, we have the tallest tower and... Yeah, I think like when you brought it back to um, uh, colonialism, too, and like how the railway and still is kind of how we were able to expand into the rest of Canada. It's a weird thing to look at as like this monument that a lot of people, you see it and you don't need to see anything else. And a lot of folks can kind of be like, well, that's Toronto. It's either that or it's the Space Needle. Yeah, I I really, I want to thank you for your answer is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Yeah, and thank you for for telling us about that cooperative in Paris. That's super
1: fascinating. Um, Yeah, yeah. And another question that we've been asking that's sort of more on the whimsical side is if you had, uh, you know, unlimited power to make one sweeping change to the city that would further equity in some way, what would you choose to do?
0: This goes back to kind of this idea of, like, the purge. If you had one day to enact any power you could, what would it be if it was to make something more equitable in the city? Or just to, like, maybe shift the powers that be? Yeah, I mean, like, if I could change one thing, it would probably
2: be, like, tinging towards the end of capitalism, because I think that's where inequality necessarily persists. I feel like I've been hinting at this, too, but I, I think... A significant issue is the way that resources are distributed and allocated in the city. Hmm. I know that it's not, a lot of these things aren't controlled at the municipal level, but I think larger investments in public housing, food security, more cultural spaces, more culturally appropriate spaces as well to reflect the diversity of needs. I think that's kind of like a a good step in the right direction. But I think housing probably is a a big thing right now for a lot of people.
0: Yep. And in one of our past, interviews, we, uh, one of our speakers on the show kind of spoke around like a house that makes you feel at home. When we are talking about housing and housing equality, I think it also comes down to like folks having places that they enjoy to live and, you know, that have amenities nearby and have neighborhood uh, community feeling to them. Like it's, there's so much that goes alongside that too. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's a beautiful answer. Thank you for that. I'm also curious
1: because you're currently completing uh, a program of study in, in an institution. And I was wondering if if you had any thoughts and, and you can be as, as broad or as specific as you want, but just about the way that that planning and city building is taught in institutions, and if there's anything that you would potentially change about the way that we pass on this knowledge, that we train future planners. Um, Yeah, anything in, in that regard?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think things are beginning to shift in the right direction, at least with planning education and the way that planning is being taught. It's kind of being taught as part of an effort to working towards building a more equitable and a more just city um, while also exploring ways that planning exists in all kinds of non-institutional grassroots and informal arenas, the way that planning can be done, not just by professional planners, but by anybody. If there's one thing I could change, I mean, I would love to see what it looked like if institutions could really embed the classroom within community, um, holding space to put dialogue into practice while at the same time making the classroom accessible to the community. I think if planning is concerned about its role in shaping space and place while working alongside and with communities, there could be room for, I guess, community to shape how planning is taught.
0: So kind of sharing space with community in a more like collaborative or co-creation kind of space.
2: Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like I said, like as as planning, we're beginning to recognize that it's it's something that anybody can do. I think, I think it's just as important for people to be able to shape how planning is taught, maybe.
0: And also because bringing community into those spaces, like getting community to care around the spaces that are built around them is... Monumental in their own happiness of their area that they live, or the area that they call home, or the the city that they uh, reside in. So, yeah, that's wonderful. Would you say like diversity efforts in these programs are? I don't know how to word this. Like, is there work being done on? I'm going to say like an EDI level uh, when it comes to planning programs in post secondary institutions. They say that they're focusing more on.
2: Equity, diversity, and inclusion. And sure there are, there are some steps in that direction as well. But I think it's important to recognize that planning is very much a profession that, that white people overrepresent. I think that it's a profession where there's a lot of men and a lot of straight people as well. But yeah, there is some effort there. Is it enough? I don't, I don't, I don't think so.
1: Uh, We wanted to ask one more question, and that was just about a definition that I at least like have heard a lot about, but maybe don't fully understand the history of. Um, And I was wondering if you might be able to describe in your own words what a NIMBY is, because that's certainly something that I've heard like thrown around recently recently. A lot on like, social media and in like, conversations about planning and cities, but I don't know that, if, that I could describe it if I was asked.
2: So, do you have a definition of it that comes to mind? Yeah, absolutely, NIMBY, not in my backyard. <laughs> um, it's essentially a position that's against all development in a city. It's usually targeted towards the presence of social services, so like homeless shelters or supervised consumption sites, social housing. I think, you know, NIMBYs also emerge in response to any developments, really, condos, purpose built rentals, transit, anything that affects the so called character of the neighborhood. Of course, I think it's important to recognize that NIMBY, NIMBY logic is is deeply embedded in white supremacy and settler colonialism. It perpetuates anti-blackness and racism. And often people are more concerned with property values than they are with actual communities. I think I think of this one neighborhood in the East, and I can't remember which one, but there was a, a parking lot that was going to be redeveloped into modular housing for for public housing. And this neighborhood claimed that this parking lot was a really, really important space to their community, which like, it's it's a parking lot. Like, it's not <laughs> It's not that serious. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> That's so nefarious.
0: Yeah. I know on one of our previous walks around our neighborhood, you've spoken to a bit around like Toronto's history of nimbyism. Uh, would you feel comfortable kind of like sharing your take on that as well?
2: Yeah. Um, well, NIMBYs can be found in, in any city, I'm sure. Uh, Toronto has very restrictive zoning. I'm not too much of a planning historian, so I don't think I'm going to be able to provide like a really succinct and beautiful description of Toronto's <laughs> history with NIMBYism. You know, I think to the the Stop Spadina Expressway, for example, which was spearheaded by Jane Jacobs and the community, which I'm incredibly thankful for. I'm so happy that we don't have a highway going through Cedarvale or Bean. But I think it's also important to recognize that a lot of people who are part of this kind of mobilized around that issue to protect property values more than protecting the erasure of communities. So I guess that's one piece of history that I know of. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know when, when Toronto became so NIMBY, but yeah. But here we are now. <laughs> here we are now. And of course, there um, are yimbies as well. What's a YIMBY? <laughs> um, <Wait. laughs> so, yes, in my backyard. And some people put Yimbyism in, in a positive light, and I think that's fine in some ways. But in other ways, I think I think Yimbyism can sometimes be equally problematic. Maybe I kind of view Yimby and Nimby, I guess, as two sides of the same coin. But on this side, we have advocacy for neoliberal ideals of the free market, which are just as quick to perpetuate inequalities and injustices as Nimbyism does. Maybe just a different flavor just as NIMBYism is is rooted in logics of white supremacy and settler colonialism, as I mentioned, so too is Yimbyism rooted in a racial capitalism, which I guess requires a degree of inequality necessary for expansion and growth. And in my experience, it's rare for a self-identified Yimby to to understand that building luxury developments doesn't necessarily improve the supply of deeply affordable housing. We're still working within a framework that views housing as a commodity or an investment vehicle rather than a place of care and community healing and love. This isn't to say that a Yumbi can't be critical of all these things and have, have good intentions. And maybe some of your listeners might be, might be angry with me for that definition, but I can look at that.
1: Right. So the the NIMBY is sort of like, you know, don't touch my property values. Marginalized communities, and the Yimby is like, "Don't touch my luxury condo development." Marginalized communities, and either way, in some cases, those folks are being displaced or aren't being allowed into the conversation.
2: Yeah, yeah, perhaps. And Yimby, I would say it's more like, "Don't touch my free market." <laughs> um, okay, more than more than anything else.
0: Thank you. Thank you for explaining the two sides of that coin. Mm -hmm. And that pretty much concludes most of the questions we have for you today. But I also want to leave space for you to speak about your dreams, your aspirations, and also query and question us about uh, what we're here to talk about today. So, yeah, do you have any... What are your dreams? (laughs) No. Uh, I mean, you have spoken a lot in this conversation around a just and equitable city and the way we can view culture and art and uh, city spaces. So maybe that question is already been answered, but yeah. Do you have any questions for us uh, before we end today's interview? Yeah. I
2: would love to hear more about this production you're putting on, especially with reimagining the space of the CN tower. Tell me more about this.
1: Sure. I mean, we do not quite know yet, but that's why I, we're interviewing you, which is why we're interviewing you and many other people. But yeah, well, I think what, we were curious about was sort of about the the way that the city is constantly changing, and especially in the pandemic, like so many spaces have been lost, um, and how that is both a tragedy and a site of mourning, but also an opportunity as well. Um, and I think we'd also spend a lot of time, and I think like Wes in particular is more. Um, is really curious about, like, the municipal consultation process. Um, mm-hmm. So if you have any hot takes on that, let us know. But just the the way that that can really fail the actual notion of, like, meaningful consultation with communities. And we were also talking about, you know, like, the CN Tower and how polarizing, strangely, this, like, metal dick in the sky is. And so I, I think what we're interested in creating is some sort of That sounds so pretentious, like theatrical ritual, Um, but uh, but I show art piece like community art piece uh, where people can both have a space to sort of mourn some of those spaces like the beaver that aren't around anymore or even just like parts of the city moments in the city that don't or can't exist because the landscape of the city has changed Um, and we've been talking about sort of like a processional community event around that and then also sort of thinking about a theatrical heightened version of a municipal consultation process and what that would look like i think that section is something that we're a little shakier on right now because We spoke to someone else who really graciously brought up the point that if you're staging a fake municipal consultation, at what point does it become a real consultation? And then at what point should you really be paying your audience for giving their time and energy and And thoughts thoughts. to you? And so that is like, I think our a little bit of a stumbling point right now for us is like, oh, is this just are we just doing a municipal consultation? Like what's happening? But that is sort of
0: the the world that we're in. Does any of that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And going to just one quick note about kind of how we got here too was like me and Nathaniel had uh, met through other art means and uh had went out for wine and coffee and parks and our conversations really surrounded thoughts around queer cities. And does a queer city exist? And like when we think of like single family homes and the disappearance of queer spaces and even just the way that we like don't have public washrooms in toronto because of cruising that happened back like a hundred years ago it's just like how much queerness has shaped the city but also just how much like heteronormativity i'm gonna say that again heteronormative <laughs> tea yeah has uh shaped kind of the world that we exist in now and I think one text that I'd like to bring up to you and it was the faggot and friends between revolutions and it's kind of a queer manifesto by a queer commune in New York talking about this like very fantastical idea of like what their city could look like and I mean like There's fairies in it and everything else. Um, But there was one line of text too around like, and i am never quoted it right. So this is like the 10th time I've quoted it wrong. But the line was somewhere along the lines of like, the queens make beauty from what the white cis man has left behind. And in like the rubble of the city, the underbelly of the city, they like put on gowns and make beauty happen again. So I guess for me and Nathaniel, we kind of got stuck in the same world that I think you did just around like, queer space and how it exists. And then it got bigger. It got more talking around equity and about the spaces that a lot of folks didn't ever have access to or never felt comfortable in or never really felt invited in or safe in. Um, So yeah, (laughs) that's kind of like the, how we got to where we are, but definitely somewhere along the way, we got inspired to really yeah, we got inspired to talk to folks and really like have conversations around these things because neither of us, were not planning students. We're maybe urbanists or like equity focused individuals where we like do care around the betterment of our urban spaces, but we don't know how to navigate that. So I think for us, it's always been about making space to speak to people like you and to community organizations and folks on the front lines and folks in all different spaces and places to kind of gather that knowledge and part of the reason we're doing the podcast is also that we're not holding that on for ourselves but able to kind of share this with others so that was a really long rant on behalf of both of us but that kind of goes to where we were where we are and where we're going
2: that's incredible thank you so much for for having me here and uh letting me speak about my research i'm a bit of a nerd so i love i love talking about these things very much
0: um so yeah thank you for having me yeah thank you for coming and uh being here with us and we are all nerds here uh or we wouldn't be having these conversations i think me and nathaniel can attest to that as well
1: can i ask you one more question before we (laughs) wrap up? okay okay just i am curious like With a queer DIY space, obviously that could take like any shape, any form, could be like a rave in the woods, could be what have you. But are there any elements if you today were to craft your own like queer DIY event for the future? Like what what elements would you like really consider in in putting that together?
2: It's funny that you asked me that because I think it's so it's it's so easy for me to get lost in theory and then forget about like practical implications, like implications of things and how to actually implement these, these ideas that I'm trying to think through. Do you mean like physical elements or yeah,
1: um, like physical elements or just basic considerations, like accessibility, or even just like a, like an ethos or a spirit that you would like to, to sort of pervade the the atmosphere.
2: Yeah. I think in terms of like an an ethos or a spirit, I think it's something that really embraces spontaneity. Did I pronounce that right? spontaneity, Spontaneousness? spontaneousness. <laughs> something that embraces embraces that, but it's it's also it's also responsive to uh, the needs of the people who are going to be in that space, um, which might change from night to night or hour to hour even. so I think I think something that's you know radically inclusive, that's accessible to all is super important, which I think has, has a lot of these uh, DIY parties and, and spaces that emerge are kind of emerging out of, I guess, precarious space situations in the city. It's hard to find space here. I think it just speaks to the importance of being able to, to have space for, for, for multiple uses. So in that way, basic things like accessibility can be ensured, I guess, to to really, to really make sure that these spaces are inclusive for everybody.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much for answering that. If we could talk for a second just around Toronto as a festival city. We spoke to Clayton Lee of Buddies in Bad Time, Artistic Director of the Rhubarb Festival. He kind of spoke about Toronto as like the city of festivals, the city that like is in love with festival culture and like we don't really have. And I think this almost goes back to your thought around like mixed use spaces or like spaces that can be a hundred things because we as a city, we do, we, we are always in flux what can a space be then to put on a a rave and then put on a church service the next day and then put on a bake sale by a community group and put on, like, there's, I think, so many beautiful things that could happen if we just like redefined a lot of zoning around certain spaces. So yeah, it kind of makes me excited about like maybe what the future can hold. Cause at the end of the day, we have to have hope for a better city. Um not that there's anything not wait, no, I'm going to take that back. There's lots wrong with the city and many all urban spaces. But I guess I have hope that we can create kind of what we're talking about here in the years to come. So I want to leave it with that. Yeah, absolutely. You had a rebuttal. I want to hear it. Yeah, no, I was
2: just going to say something along those lines as well. Like, I think it's I think it's really easy to write off Toronto as just this sea of glass condos at times. But I think once you really begin to scratch the surface, you're seeing that despite struggle and despite precarity, people are still finding ways to find community, to build community, to make art, to hold space in, in unconventional ways. And I mean, I think that's beautiful, but yeah. And, and you mentioned zoning and like what it might look like for one space to be multiple things for different people. I mean, there's this one project in Amsterdam, which I think is now coming to a conclusion called De School, I think. And it was a former technical school, but the city of Amsterdam allowed for a 24 hour licensing thing to be applied to it. So one part of this school was a nightclub that ran from like I think midnight to 8 a.m. or something and then it would turn into a restaurant and a cafe and a community center um all in the span of 24 hours which I think is so cool and I would love to see something something on that scale in Toronto which I think would be great to explore
0: so this goes back to the purge this goes back to the idea of like if we had 24 hours to change the city um yeah create a multi-use space cool that's amazing. I, I can't wait to research about that. Dis school is what it's called? Dis school, D-E, and then school. Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough uh, for uh, speaking with us today. Well, thank you so much. This was, this was fantastic. Thanks for
2: having me. Today's episode was edited by Wesley
1: Ribling and project managed by Hannah Sheen post-production was by aria tom and music
0: was by aria and benjamin mestripolito funding for flux is from the social innovation department at tmu and major Matt mason collective today's episode couldn't have happened without our wonderful guest travis thank you travis and thank you all for listening catch you in a few weeks